Hello, welcome again to Sport Unlocked with me, Rob Harris from Sky News, Martin Ziegler from The Times and Tarek Panja from The New York Times. Good to be back together. Good to be with you guys and uh, for our listeners, we've had a, a, a bit of a break for some unforeseen personal circumstances, but we're great to be back with you and um, it's been a, an interesting week, guys, on, on lots of fronts. Yeah, we ended up at the Sports Pro Conference this week, some of that in a second, uh, myself and Martin. We actually went to a government announcement on concussion as well, which seems pretty surprising. We're in 2023 and it's the first British guidelines in terms of handling a concussion. Yeah, that's probably the most surprising thing about the whole thing, that there already weren't guidelines in place. It shows uh, just how far the sport has got to catch up with what to, to many people would seen a sort of obvious area of concern guys this is a you know um a global podcast i bet even that guidance that the brits have come out with i bet you you know if we if we really looked into it it's probably ahead of quite a lot of other countries to be honest with you i think it's an area of sport that's been you know um ignored for for a really long time yeah they think they are the only global national guidelines and the guidelines are actually not too stringent as you'd imagine it's actually just sit out sport for 24 hours if you do have a suspected concussion obviously the recommendations as well are to sit out for even longer it's 21 days if you if you think you've had a concussion of which 14 days should be symptom free but i think it's at least 24 hours if there's any doubt um but i think the i mean you're right it's only really the usa and the uk which is focused on it i mean when you talk about uh, people in, in world football about sort of concussion trials. They say well, basically it's just not an issue in other countries. It's just, especially in football, um, because it doesn't happen that often. Rugby is a sort of different thing because it's you know head, head impacts happen all the time. Interestingly, when Joe Biden was in Ireland, one of his speeches he used to say his grandkids played rugby over American football, and it was safer for them. The NFL has been wrestling um, safety issues for. 20 years um that's even longer than rugby union rugby league but it's uh yeah but safety is very much uh, an issue for all these sort of impact sports because legal actions are are ongoing actually interesting one of the people at the concussion announcement the person who drafted the guidelines or chaired the group is actually one of the most significant figures in sport you've probably never heard of the surgeon who operates on neymar and uh, gareth bale and others yes uh, Professor James Calder, who is an orthopaedic surgeon, very uh, had a very interesting career. Um, he also led the government's committee in returning sport to, after the pandemic. It's interesting they picked an orthopaedic surgeon, Martin, to do something on head injuries. I, was, there, was there a reason why? I, I thought he'd probably be someone who looks at ankles and knee joints rather than head injuries, or is it because he's someone who's familiar with how sport works as well yeah i think it's because his experience in sort of lead leading the decision making and returning to sport during the pandemic that's that's sort of why he was thrust into that position um but actually he's uh yeah as well as um doing all the ankle and and knee operations on players for real madrid barcelona psg rugby union teams he's also uh He's a former soldier. Um, he used to be an, an, an infantry officer, medic. Um, I think served with special forces in Iraq and Afghanistan as uh, as a medic. So, yeah, he's a fascinating career. All, all the hallmarks of future guest of pod there. 
Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting character. And one of the other people actually down at this launch, which was on a five-a-side pitch in London, was the sports minister, Stuart Andrews. So it was a chance to talk to him as well about the latest in Russians in sports. Over the last few weeks, more Ukraine protests over the IOC sticking to their position of allowing Russians in as neutrals. But we have had Wimbledon allowing the return of Russian and Belarusian players into the championships. I was down at the All England Club this week and it's really hard to see what has changed in terms of why they've come to this position this year, unlike last year, apart from the fact they're under the threat of renewed sanctions and being fined by the tennis authorities and not having ranking points as well at all. And, you know, certainly speaking to the sports minister, it's hard to sort of discern why the British government has no problem with Russian and Belarusian players at Wimbledon, but is still resisting Russians and Belarusians as neutrals at the Olympics in Paris. I spoke to him about that. Um, he he said that the British government hadn't changed its position on the Olympics, and that they were they had always said that um, this you know they, they they were okay with for Russians to take part as neutrals, and insisted they hadn't changed their position, which I don't think was correct because. I, I, it, it does seem there's a slight. To me, I always thought the British government thought they they didn't want Russians to take part under any circumstances, and it now looks as though that position is shifting slightly. Um, but and there's sort of issues of clarifications around whether they're part of the Russian military, funded by or funded by the Russian state. So, which is the IOC position? Yeah. He did say he doesn't want to see Russians as neutrals within teams, but we already have the word from the IOC there won't be neutral Russians in team sports. And he also talked about issues with Russians, how they'd appear in the medals table, but perhaps a lesser known fact to people, there isn't actually an official Olympic medals table, is there? No, no, it's a, it's a broadcast. But the, 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 um, the change of tone is pretty obvious there, isn't it? If you look at those um, statements that we've been getting, <laughs> Um, whenever these meetings take place, and there were those um, sports minister meetings a few months ago as well, this seems to be clearly a move away from those more um, hard positions, doesn't it? I suppose we have so many sports ministers, there might be another one along soon who will have a different opinion. And they lack much leverage as well, because they are ruling out a boycott. He said there won't be a boycott of the Olympics. So therefore, if you're trying to apply pressure on the IOC, what is the or else? Well, You've already said you're not going to sort of pull the Team GB out of the games, but certainly the Baltic nations seem far more aligned to the Ukraine position, for instance. So that is a situation that you can't see them backing down from in terms of want to compete with Russian and Belarusian athletes. I do think that the, the, the British government's position is now a bit sort of woolly and confused because it's much easier if you say we don't want Russian athletes at all, which is what, as you say, Ukraine and the Baltic nations are saying. If you had this some sort of thing about you can come as neutrals, but not if you're state funded, not if you know, it's just 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 draw a line and you know fight for what you believe in rather than this sort of slightly woolly, opaque. I, I, I don't even know what their position is now, actually. Well, it was actually we don't want Putin using sport at all for propaganda purposes. That would mean having Russians competing, say, at the All England Cup, which is why they weren't there last year uh, you know talking to the bosses of Wimbledon they are doing things like donating a pound from every ticket to Ukrainian causes so that should raise 
half a million pounds. They're also going to fund two rooms for accommodation for players all throughout the grass court season. And I did ask, they will not be selling the TV rights, they say, to Russia, and they won't allow Russian media in, they say, to uh, the championships. Well, that's the, I guess, you know, the, the point of the propaganda, I suppose, Martin was raising there. Um, actually, the sports was another element of the war in Ukraine that, you know, is now in its second year. There was the um, president of um, Shakhtar Donetsk, Ukraine's top team, was was there on Tuesday. And, you know, again, this kind of wooliness around governance and, and, and the war, Shakhtar Donetsk have been quite loud about the issues they face. Famously known for employing lots of um, South American players, unearthing these gems that then go on to play um, in in the Premier League and elsewhere. William, for example, was there at Chelsea is one example. But, you know, they have lots of players. Uh, after the war, uh, FIFA said because of the, the situation, foreign players, even if they're under contract, could leave Ukrainian teams until such time as it was safe. Um, and they've they've lost tens of millions of euros worth of players. And you could say that's fine. Who wants to play in a war zone? Um, but there is, you know, no compensation for that. Um, and once the players are out of contract, that they're, they're off. Uh, at the same time, Shakhtar Donetsk and the U- Ukrainian teams, they still have to pay transfer fees for any players they signed before the war. So they're losing millions on one hand and it's still forced to pay um, what they owe to, to the to these other teams around the world. And and they're being squeezed. There is this, um, they're asking for FIFA to help. They're asking for the ECA to help. And, and so far, there is nothing. And it, it just seems a, a vice that these teams have been caught up in. Yeah, Sergei Palkin, he, he was in London, wasn't he, for, for that, the Shakhtar Donetsk CEO. They're, I think it's something like forty million pounds. They say they've, they've they've lost out on, and they've actually filed a complaint with the European Commission against FIFA. Um, so it'd be an interesting test case. See if they can if they can win on this. Well, in the world of FIFA, it's actually been exam time as potential agents have been put through the new tests and perhaps the tougher than we imagined these exams because there were multiple choice, but the pass rate hasn't been high, has it? No, it gives a pass rate of 52%. And and um, also the number of uh, candidates that actually sat the exams, uh, an open book exam, was, was lower than the number who registered. There were about 6,000 who actually registered for this. I think around 3,000, around half of that, actually took the test, um, which requires a 75% mark to pass. And yeah, 52% of them got through. Um, and a lot of agents have been angry about these reforms even before before the exams. Yeah, I think there is a, um, well, they go with the textbook and that you're supposed to study. Um, I think they want to professionalise the 
the, the business of being an agent, I suppose. But there is several lawsuits. We talked about the one against FIFA earlier with Shakhtar. There's several against FIFA now, and, and there's one in the European Court of Justice, one in Germany, one in the Netherlands, one at CAS uh, from agents who I think in particular have taken umbrage at this cap, as you can imagine, on commissions, um, which is at, you know 3% for if you represent the buying club, um, and three percent for the selling club as well, I think, and then um, five or six percent for the player. And you know, we've seen tens of millions of euros, dollars, whichever currency you want, go into the pockets of those large agents. And I dare say that was more than a three percent fee in a lot of cases, yeah, for sure. Well, elsewhere in the world of football politics, we talk about the European Club Association often on here, but we have yet another new body to talk about the. Union of European Clubs. Now, this is those clubs who feel almost excluded from the decision-making at the European Club Association, their attempt to sort of gain a seat at the top table in terms of influence, perhaps for the middle class of clubs. So who, who are the clubs involved in this? They met in Brussels this week. What are they exactly calling for? What can they actually achieve, given that close ETA-UEFA relationship? Well, though Steve Parrish from Crystal Palace was was there, I mean, I'm not sure if they officially joined yet, but he he was certainly one of the people there. It's fair to say it's been funded, at least in part, by Javier Tebas and La Liga, and I think that I don't know from a from an institutional point of view, from a kickoff point of view, the idea that you know your backing is from from this league and from Javier Tebas, just after he's left the European leagues, I, I don't know. Does that suggest is there enough independence and separation from La Liga and Javier Tebas for these these this group that is supposed to be representative of um all of those smaller medium teams that are not in in the top level European competitions in the ECA, I guess. Wasn't this the same Javier Tebas who a few weeks ago was talking about the Super League exists, it's the Premier League, and yet now he's happily embracing the likes of Crystal Palace and the Premier League to help bolster this new body? I think it's a strange one. I mean, you can see why that there are lots of... I mean, Steve Parrish has spoken often about his dissatisfaction that um, around the way UEFA sort of organises the Champions League and the way it distributes its money. Um, he th- and he basically thinks it sort of, it sort of props up the, the established clubs and actually there should be a much greater sort of financial distribution around Europe. Um, and I'm sure there are lots of other clubs who, who feel the same. So maybe this will give them a voice. But as, as you said, it, it, it probably needs to be independent of a, of, of a European league. Otherwise, it, it sort of, that doesn't really make sense. Yeah, Parrish was, was quite interesting. He talked about the, you know, the, the chance for teams to, to dream, fans to dream that their team could, could make it... Um, through to one of these competitions, win a trophy one day. And, and that is what most, you know, it's a nice feeling, isn't it? And that, and they talked about jeopardy as well. And I think most of us would agree football is best when there is jeopardy and, and, and the chance for, for new teams to, to win competitions. Um, but, you know, by doing that, he took a pop at this coefficient that UEFA uses. And I think there is something to be said for that. Um, but all of that day, that the, the launch, a lot of it, it was just talking about money, wasn't it? It felt like it's just to talk about give us more money. 
Um, and the things that we would, you know, 5% or 10%, is that going to move the needle when it comes to having new teams competing, um, balancing the playing field, not having the same winners? Or it just gives maybe just a bit more money to the owners of more teams? Is that is that is that it, you know? You've also got to sort of look at their tactics and work out how they're going to exert pressure because if we look at the launch, yesterday it got some coverage, but Tarek, did you cover it? I, I noted it on social media. Not in print. Martin, did it make the Times? Um, it, it, it didn't make a small piece in the Times just because of from, from what Steve Parrish was saying. Um, but... I would say, I think... As I said, Steve Parrish hasn't even officially joined yet. <laughs> no, we don't know. We don't know who's who's officially joined it. I would say there are some really good people behind it, though, or people involved in it, like Gareth Farrelly, for example, former Everton, Aston Villa, player turned lawyer. You know, if you if you meet Gareth, he talks really well about some of these issues. And it's, it's good to debate issues that, um, you know, that would affect more clubs, more fans. It's probably good. Whether whether having more and more bodies having a seat at the table, I, I don't know. But also, I guess it then exerts a bit of pressure on the European Clubs Association um, to to represent the voices of smaller medium clubs, which they would say they have been doing increasingly. Um, so maybe some of this does have an effect. I mean, the ECA does have. HJK Helsinki's chief executive, Aki Rihilati, a former guest of this pod as its vice chairman. So I suppose they can claim that they they, they are giving a voice to the, the smaller clubs. But I think obviously there is this issue around money. Um, and, you know, we, we are at a situation now where UEFA has to decide how it distributes its money from next season. Um and this coefficient funding, thirty-one percent of something like of, of of the of the TV money in the market pool is distributed based on your performance in Europe over the last ten years, uh, with a sort of bonus depending on how many times you've won the Champions League or the or the Europa League. It's um, so you can see why people think this is just. Um, helping the, the established clubs. Yeah, you just wonder how much they can actually galvanise the fans. I got no sense this new body was sort of talking to the fans in the way you sort of communicate in a mass way over Europe, you know, by holding it in Brussels and things like that, rather than sort of key things in domestic markets. But it seems if you're going to apply that pressure, you need to actually get the masses involved and get them, you know, rising up. We've seen some countries, Germany, huge banners against the likes of UEFA and some of the sort of football leadership. But it can seem an intently sort of political lobbying group. So you, you question its sort of chance at success or maybe it's just about sort of chipping away and getting more of a say within the ECA. Uh, Rob, you mentioned Germany there and you're right. I mean, the fan culture and the, the kind of interest in, in these issues seems to be um, more consistent and less fleeting. Obviously, when the Super League was on, we had, you know, images of fans in, in England, for example, going on mass and protesting outside stadiums during I think it was during COVID as well and the game at Old Trafford being stopped. But but it was a moment. I think in Germany there is that consistency of the fan base. And there was a story this week where Dusseldorf, a team in the second division, have got this new idea where they're going to give free tickets away to supporters, starting with three games next season. They said 
um, sponsors are going to pay for this. It's a new new way of you know attracting sponsors, and eventually, the plan is for fans to not pay at all to go and watch this football team, and it will all be covered by the 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 sponsors. And the idea is the football club belongs to the community. Um, which is taking us all the way back to the roots of all these clubs, to be honest. They're rooted in their community. And and Dusseldorf, which um, plays in a stadium that is far bigger than the 24,000 they regularly attend, expect to you know, have a full house every week, um, you know, 60-odd thousand people cheering on their team and maybe more success as a result of that. Very interesting project. Yeah, you do wonder, in terms of free tickets, whether if it wasn't for financial fair play, any of the state-owned clubs would do that. You know, in England, whether it's Newcastle, Manchester City, would that be sort of gaining goodwill from their fans? But additionally, one of the issues, if you give tickets away, there's less incentive for people to actually go to the games, isn't there? As we, yeah, you, you know, can maybe skip it. The women's game. Yeah. Talk about state ownership. Um, we are sort of moving towards a sort of climax of Manchester United sale and um, the possibility of Qatar being involved in taking over that club. Uh I understand that the, the the bank leading the sale has, has told all bidders to provide information on the ultimate beneficial owner. And so whether that is the, the state of Qatar bidding or whether that's Sheikh Jassim's father or him himself, that's, that's something that needs to be provided. And Christian Persley, the Aston Villa chief executive, gave a really interesting interview, I thought, to, to Beth Rigby on Sky News. Rob, um, in which she sort of made clear the concerns the clubs have about the sort of state ownership or effectively Newcastle United by Saudi Arabia, Manchester City by the United Arab Emirates and Abu Dhabi. Um, and if there's going to be another one, is it just going to be a sort of battleground for Middle East states in English football? Yeah, uh, Christian Perslow was Liverpool uh, managing director, wasn't it, to sign that they potentially had... Uh investment from Dubai. This is, what, 14 years ago, isn't it? Uh, now, obviously, he's chief executive of Aston Villa and uh, really interesting comments to my colleague Beth Rigby talking about a clear and present danger in terms of state ownership. And he addressed the thorny issue of who controls Newcastle. For those less familiar, they are owned by the Public Investment Fund, the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. The Premier League approved the takeover in 2021, saying they had legally binding guarantees the kingdom didn't own Newcastle but then in the United States in the court case relating to Liv's ownership of the golf series and the battle with the PGA they said actually they shouldn't have to give evidence they shouldn't be party to the case because they've got to state immunity as a so- as a state sovereign wealth fund. Just to be clear the Premier League actually has no prohibition on states owning teams though so the the point of the newcastle takeover if we remember is about um who would have to go through the um owners and directors test which popularly known as the fit and proper persons test and if you go to look at piff's website the person who would have had to um i guess submit to that is a saudi state and the person at the top of that is mohammed bin salman the crown prince and that that was the 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 issue um, I heard the Premier League recently has has got that ten team ten team committee set up again to look at its rules on on um, ownership and finances. This was that committee a, a year or so ago that asked for all related party transactions 
to be um, addressed and to be studied by, by by the league. And again, that that related party rule was because of these state-owned teams. But it feels like after the horse is bolted, doesn't it? I mean, we're going to have a team that's going to win most likely the fifth championship in six years. Um, Manchester City. We're also going to have um, 115 charges. Uh, we're waiting for for a for a um, a result uh, on uh, four or five years later. So, you know what what they what can they do? Despite Perslow's um, protestations on on Sky News this week, I don't think they can do anything really because it's you know there's the British government doesn't have trades. Very to a very large extent with with these Gulf nations, um, so it, it's a sort of restraint of trade in a, in a way to say that they can't buy a you know, a state can't buy a um, a club. But even if they did have those rules, I th- there's there's almost no point having them because it, they would just be you know you'd, you'd have to just get an individual to um, take it over in name, and then they would be you know. It, no one's. It's almost impossible for the Premier League to check where their source of of money is coming from, as long as they've got a lot a lot in the bank. Yes, because Manchester City famously is not owned by the United Arab Emirates. If you ask anyone at the club, it is a private investment by His Highness Sheikh Mansour bin Zayed Al Nayan, a, a big football fan who has visited Manchester City once to watch a, a game in 2008, I think, against Liverpool in, in that September. Manchester City won 3-0. It seemed he'd seen enough and um, hasn't come back for the past decade. Although it was Pep Guardiola the other week, wasn't it? He talked about being owned by Abu Dhabi. Well, <laughs> maybe, he was in, maybe he was in the United States. Was it here? Because you could have different... You say a different thing there and a different thing in the UK. Uh, Al Saudi, I don't know. Of course, one thing Christian Persler could do is back a move for more public disclosure of Premier League investigations because it would only take the Premier League clubs themselves to vote in a change to allow them actually to be able to disclose even if they are investigating because Richard Masters, the Premier League chief executive, told the committee of MPs a few weeks ago that he wouldn't be allowed to confirm or deny even if there was an investigation into this whole matter of control of Newcastle in light of the Live Golf case. But just on that restraint of trade thing Martin talked about, okay. Restraint of trade. But then you look at Germany and Germany has football rules that seem to be, you know, all powerful that most of the clubs and they've been strengthened as well that no individual owner seems only like a handful of very um, a few teams, Hoffenheim, Red Bull, can't own a, a, a team. So, you know, we we're obviously, we've had Brexit now and we're, we're outside. Rules could be formulated in the United Kingdom to protect football clubs, to make them special assets that aren't the same as a bank or a, or a, or a, you know, a bridge or you know, a very tall building in London. And sports does have special exemptions. So we see in Europe even the fact that you can have regulations that mean only UEFA can organise a Europe-wide competition rather than a sort of free market of Super Leagues and the like. That's a special exemption for sport, isn't it? Oh yeah, I'm not saying that you can't have special rules for sport. It's just I, I just think that they're it's they're so they're so easily got around is, is the point I was trying to make. So if you did have a thing saying no state ownership, 
you just get, as you say, Sheikh Mansour, who, who does happen to be the Deputy Prime Minister of the United Arab Emirates. A recent promotion, though, is now, is he Vice President? Yeah, he's... Uh... Vice, he's gone up from Deputy Vice Pres- Prime Minister to Vice President. That doesn't sound like much of a promotion to me. Yeah, well, I guess even less time to, to go to Manchester and maybe watch his, 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 football, his football team. On the other hand, guys, you know, the Manchester City's football has been almost perfect. You know, there must be, uh, you know, a case for thousands of people might like watching this team steamrolling everyone with football that we've not seen before. Erling Haaland has broken the Premier League record um, in a way and playing in a way we've never seen. Um, they absolutely crushed Arsenal, the nearest rival this week. Do you think people, maybe people want to see football played at that kind of really impossibly high plane? Then it all comes down to, do you actually want competitive balance, a competitive league of unpredictability, or do you want to sort of watch the very best all together playing in one team? It, in some ways, I suppose, often during Usain Bolt's career, for instance, you sort of turned up at one of his 100-metre races waiting to see how great he would win by, not expecting him to be beaten. And maybe, you know, you do get that with a type of football team that amasses the best players. You just want to see how brilliant they can be. I mean, I think, you know, people like seeing great teams, you know, the great Barcelona team of whatever it was 10 years ago um, with, with Messi. But as you referenced before, there is a, there is a sort of an issue hanging over this because of these 115 rule, alleged rule breaches by Manchester City. So, I mean, I think for a lot of people looking on, there's a sort of, there's a, certainly a sort of question mark. No one's saying that Man City haven't been charged with anything, any rule breaches recently in the last five years. But obviously there is this thing hanging over their heads, which it's sort of impossible to ignore, isn't it? And it becomes a sort of challenge in the media. How often do you bring it up, particularly in relation to these final weeks of the season? And it is sort of key context about the whole City project while not taking away from what the players themselves are doing. Yeah, sure. and I guess in terms of um, whether it's a state project, I think it was interesting, the, the, the leader of Albania was one of the guests of, of Manchester City in the, in the box against Arsenal this week. You know, um, you, you know, maybe just in Manchester for the day and wanted to watch a football match. But, but again, you know, you, perhaps there's some state-to-state relationships. Or, or the fact that we have to even raise these questions, just it just seems a world away from what what a football club was in the past, I guess. And it's from the owners, Martin, do you think they don't want to really outlaw state ownership because they'll have um, fewer money bags to sell the, the the teams to? You know, going back to the Manchester United sale, how many how many other people are going to pay the crazy amount the Glazers are asking for but a country? Well, I suppose Ineos maybe. But, uh... Maybe. Obviously, it's not just foreign investment in clubs. It's also about foreign players coming to the Premier League that sort of helped the Premier League's global appeal. But... There have been some curbs, particularly from Europe in recent years, since Brexit in terms of signing players. It's all due to the new visa regulation. But clubs haven't been happy with it and they do want greater flexibility to sign more foreign players. And Martin, the FA are in talks, aren't they, with the Premier League about how this might be achieved? Yeah, because when Brexit came in, um, what it meant Premier League clubs could no longer sign any European player. Um, and they couldn't sign players aged between 16 and 18 anymore, which they were able to before. Uh, but what it, what has happened is that it's easier to sign 
South Americans, Central Americans, Africans, Asians, who weren't in the EU before um, on the on the new point system. But uh, the, what's been happening is they've been the clubs have been finding they're having to pay top dollar for these players, and, and obviously they're not, they're, they're not happy about it. Uh, what they want is some sort of ability to sign uh, promising young players who don't haven't got the points. Um, but they, they can be developed, and the the Premier the FA has proposed the Premier League clubs a sort of incentive system where, if you pl- give uh, English players thirty five percent of the time of minutes are given to English players or more, then you can sign four. You can have four players in your squad who don't meet the the points. Over 30% is three players, and under that is two players. So you can sign a, a, a number of players, these sort of promising young players, uh, for low transfer fees and, and develop them. Per um, season, Martin? Well, so within your squad at any time. Oh, OK. All right. Well, we, we, Martin, we spoke to um, Paul Barbo, didn't we, on Tuesday from Brighton about this. And he, he seemed to suggest that basically they end up having to spend more money on players they would have recruited who they had their eye on but couldn't because of this point system. And that means they, I suppose you'd expect him to say, invest less, have less money to invest in, in, their, in their youth academy and, 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 and um, young English players. That was the case he was trying to make, right? If we, had, if we could save more money, we'd put it into English football. Um, did, you, did, you, did you buy that? Well, I'm not necessarily saying you're going to spend more on your academy, which, which he suggested. But he did say they already spent a lot on their academy, and then, and and that it obviously makes financial sense to develop players, and you don't have to you don't have to like spend huge amounts in the transfer market. I mean, for somebody like Brighton, uh, who've been very good at spotting this talent before it comes through, um, I think it you know you, you can see for them that they could they could make use of this quite well. They could spot these players. Um, they don't have, may not have the points. It may not be established internationals, and yet, so they can if they brought four, have four of these players in their squad, which they could then either develop themselves or or sell on for a, a handsome profit, which which obviously they do. Then then yeah, it's huge for them. It's a massive part of their business. Where you know you've got Alexis McAllister who ended up winning the World Cup, and you've got all those players from Ecuador. So like every every summer they seem to unearth one or two players. You've got Mitoma probably up there for some of the awards this season, maybe from Japan. So, yeah, it's a massive part of the business model, isn't it? Particularly contrast at the moment with the fate of uh, Chelsea after their £600 million of spending and there they are languishing mid-bottom half of the table while Brighton are up to pushing for European qualification. Also facing sort of quite significant financial fair play challenges, actually. Um, I had a look at their full accounts when they came out and... The, the the amount they said that they lost because of the 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 restrictions imposed after the Roman Abramovich was sanctioned, not that much really. Probably about five million lost in in ticket sales. So they are you know they've, they've lost lots of money. They're not going to be in the Champions League next season. So I think that to make ends meet, they're going to have to sell a lot of players before June the thirtieth in order to make sure they don't breach the rules. And um, a desperate seller, you know, in the marketplace as we know in football. Um, the, the buying clubs know that. So it would be very hard for them to get top dollar or create the type of auction 
<laughs> well, certainly the type of auction that made Todd Boley pay and the others pay two and a half billion for Chelsea. That kind of furious auction is not going to take place for for a you know a desperate seller, is it? Well, before we go, let's just quickly run through some other matters in the news, particularly our trip to the Sports Pro live conference at the Oval. Yeah, I thought Alan Gilpin, the World Rugby Chief Exec, was interesting. Talked about moving the draw for the Rugby World Cup for future tournaments because they did this. They did the draw for the 2023 one in France. They did it like in 2020 based on the world rankings at the time. They've changed so much that they're now this sort of ridiculous position where the top four clubs are all on the same half of the draw, um, and which means that uh, you know, you're only going to get two of them in, in the semi-finals at the most. So um, he said they're going to make the draws much closer to the tournament in the future. That was one interesting thing, I thought. Good news for England, Martin. Yeah. I mean, if anyone uh, wants to put some money on the tournament, uh, and I'm certainly not re- recommending that in the, the week of the gambling white paper, but if, if they do, then I think there's a, there's a, England have got a sort of very open avenue to get to the semi-finals and obviously anything can happen then even though they've had a very very poor year in terms of their form in football world cup news fifa has received four bids for the 2027 women's tournament uh, from brazil from south america jointly from the united states and mexico also jointly from belgium the netherlands and germany and since we last recorded as well uefa has decided on the host of the women's euros in 2025 and that will be switzerland with some concern in the game that actually the largest venue is 38,000, whereas the 2022 Euros final uh, was at Wembley with its almost 90,000 capacity and it was a sellout. Yeah, that's a big difference, isn't it? A big difference. Interesting USA-Mexico game for that because that's only going to be a year after the Men's World Cup. Do you think that's viable? And the year before the Olympics. It's going to be really really squeezed in there. Um, You know... I, I don't see it as one of the favourites. I think it's an opportunity to take a World Cup maybe back to South Africa, all those white elephant stadiums that have languished there since 2010. Maybe even even Brazil with the same with the same issues with FIFA and World Cup stadia there. Chance to go somewhere somewhere else. Great stuff, guys. See you soon. As ever, you can message us at Sport Lots on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you hit subscribe, we land in your feeds automatically. But for now, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Thank you.